0: We love to be able to pray uh, for people as they preach. So I'm just going to pray for Dan um, before he starts. Um, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for Dan. Lord, we thank you, um, Lord, for... Uh, your gift to us in 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 the form of him. Lord, thank you Lord for all that he uh, has uh, received from you and Lord, we just pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying. Lord, I pray God that you would really use him this morning. Lord, I pray that he would speak um, Lord, what's on your heart. Lord, I pray you would help him to communicate in a way um, Lord, that communicates your heart and Lord, we would be open um, to all that you have for us this morning, all that you would do uh, even in the depths of our hearts. Lord, we thank you that your word um, splits bone from marrow, soul from spirit, Lord. That's how deep uh, it goes. And Lord, we just pray that you would do that this morning in uh, our hearts and our lives, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Morning, everyone. You guys are really far away today. Um, have we got a bigger space than usual? I think we do. Dancing it's dancing room. Um, but just before we start, I would be very, very grateful if someone would be willing to grab me a glass of water because I've already half lost my voice and once I read today's passage, you'll understand that I'm probably going to get quite animated and um, I'll just completely lose my voice if I don't have something. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, well, those of you who don't know me, my name's Dan and um, I'm going to be teaching uh, from God's Word for um, 30 minutes or so. And so if you're not used to, to being part of, the, part of the church, that's what we do um, every week. We spend a while looking at God's Word. And we're currently in a series on a... Um, letter in the New Testament, uh, which is called Philippians, which is a letter that was written by um, Paul, who was an early church leader. You may have heard of him as St. Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he was writing this letter to a group of churches in a city that was called Philippi. Some of you may have heard of it. It's in what is now modern-day modern Greece, kind of northern Greece. And um, we've called this series... Oh, thank you, Alice. That is going to be a lifesaver. Alice Watts, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we call called the series Joy. And if you've read through Philippians, you will probably understand why that is, because this is one of the Apostle Paul's most joy-filled letters. In fact, I'd say it's probably the most joy-filled of his letters. But if you know anything about the backgrounds, you'll realise that's a really strange word to use to summarise this letter, because Paul is in prison when he's writing this, and possibly facing his death sentence. We heard... Last week from Alice, that Paul is unsure whether he's going to end up being executed or not, but he knows that whether he does end up being executed and goes to be with the Lord, or whether he remains, he is joyful because for him to live is Christ, which means if he's alive, he's going to work for Christ because he's found his ultimate joy in Him. But if he dies, that's gain because he goes to be with Jesus. And so this is, in a sense, it's a bit of a it feels like an oxymoron to have Philippians and joy put together. But for Paul, it's not, because actually the greatest, deepest joy we get is actually from knowing Jesus. We were were created to experience joy unspeakable. That's what you were created for, in part. And we don't truly find that joy unspeakable until we meet it in Jesus' And you may be here today, and you, this may be the first time you've ever been to a church, or maybe one of the first few times you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus or a believer. And you can probably relate to the fact that as, as humans, we make a big deal of trying to find our happiness or our joy. And you may have experienced what it is to find something that you think might make you happy, only to realise that actually it's, it's not going to ultimately satisfy and we are basically, this is a room and a church full of people who have realised that the ultimate true happiness comes from knowing Jesus. And the Apostle Paul realised that all the way in the first century AD. And uh, he's, he, he, therefore he is writing a letter where he's joyful despite the fact that he is in prison. And we're going to look at another passage today from that. We call this week Joy in One Mind. So every single week we've got joy in something, and this week is joy in one mind. And the idea is actually to talk about the joy of having a church where everyone has the same mindset. And We're going to find out what that means in a minute, because that might confuse you a little bit um, if we have a particular understanding of it. But you may be a bit familiar with some of the passage today. It is, this is just... This is just dense, what I've heard someone um, talk about before is espresso theology. It's kind of one of those, it's like a very small drink espresso, but you get a lot of power and punch from it. This is, this is that kind of passage. Um, and I'd encourage you, maybe just a, a very, for those of us who are believers, even if you're not actually, this would do good for you, is why not, there's a, there's a section in this passage that I'd encourage you guys to try and memorize. So it's just, it, you'll, you'll, you'll see, it's just phenomenal. And hopefully it will produce more of the joy that we... Uh, that we've had earlier as we were singing songs to Christ and songs of thanksgiving to what he has done for us. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Philippians 2, we will be reading verses 1 to 11, the words will come up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles, um, but um, we'll, we'll read that and um, let's, just, let's just quieten our hearts before God and let's just remember we are, we are under his authority, we're under his words and so as I read this just let it affect you, let it affect your emotions good to have our emotions affected by the word of God. Let it affect you right on the inside. So Paul says, off the back of the passage we read last week in chapter one, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, From empty glory or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself." taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a passage. What an exceptional, dense, powerful passage. And its I think we could spend hours on it, which I won't. um, But we'd be scratching the the surface today. I'd encourage you, meditate on this. Spend time during the week thinking about it. Because this, this is probably this is one of the most in-depth, intense sections in the whole of the New Testament about what, who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so if, we, if, if you can get this passage memorised and meditated on you, it will do you the world of good. But um, Paul starts this passage by basically asking, so if there's any encouragement in Christ there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, the answer to those is yes, there is, in light of what's come before. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, bearing in mind what he's just said before, and you can catch up on the sermons on the podcast, you can read the actual chapter before for yourself, the answer to that is yes, of course, Paul, there is so Paul's writing this. He knows there's encouragement in Christ. He knows there's comfort from love of each other and of Christ. He knows that there's participation in the Spirit, that as believers, we, we participate in the, holy, in, in, in the work of the Spirit and we're bound together by the Spirit. And if there's any affection and sympathy, bearing in mind the answer to that question is yes, Paul says, make my joy complete. Complete my joy. Now, Imagine you go up to Paul, who's sitting in prison, wondering whether he's going to end up being executed or not, and you went to him and said, Paul, when it comes to the Philippian church, when it got that church you planted in Macedonia, what would make you the most happy? What would make you joyful even more than you are currently? And his answer would be, I want them to be of one mind. That, that would make me the happiest I could possibly be right now if I knew that that church that I planted had one mind. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That sounds like a challenge. Now, it might sound like a challenge because we might think of that as agreeing on every single preference and detail in our lives. So you might listen to that and think, well, I do not agree with most people in this room on what my favourite meal is. Does that mean we all have to have the same meal, the uh, the same favourite meal, the same favourite TV series, the same favourite books, the same favourite activities? And of course, that is not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about a bunch of clones who all have the same personal preferences. What he's talking about is a mindset. A mindset where actually the whole of the church, as, as individuals who are together, are saying... What does the gospel and the fact that Christ died for my sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, what does that mean for the way that I relate to others? It's a mindset of unity. It's a way of saying, actually, Christ has brought us together, which means my mindset should be, how can I serve others? How can I serve others out of the love that I have for them that Christ has created? So it's a mindset. And Paul says, I would be so happy. That, that, that would make my joy complete. If I, if I could see the fact that the Philippian church were of one mind, agreeing. Agreeing on the gospel. Agreeing on serving one another. In fact, you read towards the end of this letter, turns out there are a couple of ladies that are disagreeing in the church. Again, probably not about something like their favourite TV series. Probably over something that isn't actually that big a deal, that isn't central to the gospel. And Paul there says, he says, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. He's not saying I entreat them to have exactly the same preferences. He's saying I want them to be of one mindset, that they can put their differences aside and say, I'm gonna serve you and you're gonna serve me and we are gonna serve each other. That's the kind of mindset Paul wants. And he said, That would make that would make my joy complete, which is why we've called this joy in one mind. Now, imagine. So Nice quick easy illustration. So how does that work? Imagine you had a large ship float sailing around. Imagine it's a sailing boat, just to make it a bit better. You so you've got multiple people on that boat who are the crew. Now one single person is not going to be able to move that boat. So you might have someone on the wheel, You might have the, I have no idea how sailing works by the way, you've got someone on the, Alice is probably going to correct me, the helm, there we go, you've got someone who's taking care of the sails, making sure that they're put up in the right way. Now imagine that everyone on that boat didn't have the same mindset. That one person was saying, well actually I think we're going that way, and the person who's at the helm is saying, I think we're going that way, and the person who's up doing all the stuff with the sails thinks, I'm going that way. It would be an absolute nightmare. However, if you've got a boat full of people who are, have the same mindset, who say, that's where we're going. That's our destination. They're not going to do exactly the same thing. The person at the helm is going to do the steering thing, however that works, moves the rudder with the wheel. The person who's taking care of the mast and the sails is going to make sure that he puts them up in the right way. But they're going to end up at their destination because they're of one mind. It's a bit like that with the church. If you have a church which is basically filled with individuals who ultimately have completely different mindsets it's going to be a little bit chaotic. It's not going to be gospel-centred. Whereas if you have a church of people who are different, have different gifts, have different backgrounds, different languages even, different cultures, but who said we're united in the gospel, our mindset is set towards Jesus and what he's done and how we can serve him, you're going to end up with an amazing church. You're going to end up with a church of people who serve one another. So that's kind of... In general, what Paul wants, he wants a church that is of one mind. But what does that look like in practice? And there are just a few things in verses 3 to 4 that we can kind of draw out here. Because verse 2, he's kind of basically just laboring the point. Be of one mind, have the same love, be in full accord and have one mind. Kind of just feels like he's saying, I really, really want this. And then he spells out a bit what that might look like in verses 3 and 4. And He says this, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. That's a challenge to the culture we live in. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. He says actually when the church thinks in the same way, it means that individuals aren't doing stuff to basically give give themselves a name, to make themselves look good. But they're actually considering others more significant than themselves in humility. Just a really quick illustration, briefly for this Luke, could you just pop up here quickly? It's a quick visual illustration for what humility is, because I think humility is one of those words where we think, okay, humility is basically thinking that you're rubbish at everything. Seems to be the way that a lot of people in our culture think about humility. It means, I'm not going to admit that God has actually gifted me in this area. I'm just going to say, I'm really rubbish. Actually, humility in this passage and often in the scriptures is actually about our relationship to others and ultimately our relationship our relation to God how we see ourselves in that and actually pride would be so if I'm the I'm the person who's illustrating this compared to Luke pride would be visually the idea of wanting to lift myself above him so I might want to be I want to be higher up than Luke I'm trying to get on my tiptoes trying as hard as I can to make myself look better than Luke whereas humility is a posture of the heart when you say actually I'm going to consider him more significant than myself. So it's a posture of the heart. It's a way of saying, not, not saying necessarily, for example, that Luke, you are better at maths than me. Because that's objectively probably not true. <laughs> that, that's not what humility is. It's saying... <laughs> it's not saying, oh, you're better at everything than me. It's saying, actually, when it comes to who do I put first, who do I consider first, I'm considering you more significant. Which means, if I've got the choice of going for my own needs and for Luke's, humility says, I'm going to consider Luke's needs more significant than my own. Which is just a challenge to our culture, I think. It's a challenge to me. Thanks, Luke, for <laughs> that illustration and slight humiliation. But, um, but that's, that's the posture of humility. And that's actually that's actually the the thing that god loves because actually our relationship to god should be one of humility it should be one of saying i'm not i don't want to make a name for myself i want to make a name for him so i am going to do stuff that actually is going to point to him rather than ultimately to me and again that's not it's not having a false humility of saying oh, i'm not really good at this actually that's just in a sense, that's a roundabout way of being proud. It's kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm super humble. Is that that kind of idea? No, it's a, it's a saying. Actually, God is the one. He's above me, and objectively, God is above me. Actually, when it comes to one another, in a sense, we are all on a level footing. But we choose to voluntarily lower ourselves compared to others. Yeah. That that doesn't exist with God. You are lower than God. And actually, being humble is actually recognising that and worshipping him in that way. And as you do that, actually, you will find that naturally you will relate to others in that way, as you think in a gospel-centred way. So that's that's one thing that Paul says. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. And then again, really making it practical. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pretty self-explanatory, but again, big challenge. Who comes first? I mean, that just, just to throw the challenge out there, I mean, if you were to ask Paul, in the church, take an individual, does their personal preference come first? Or does loving others come first? He would say loving others comes first. Loving, loving those who are in the body. And actually, I think one thing that we can do, actually, as a result of that, I think is actually to, to pray ourselves and to ask God to help us to see the needs of brothers and sisters, actually said, God, please can you help me? And I think sometimes praying something is just a very good way actively of fixing your mind on something. I am someone who very often thinks about themselves. So actually if I'm praying, God, please can you help me see the needs of my brothers and sisters in this church and see the needs of others, it's just a very practical way of making sure that actually that's what our focus is. And so I'd encourage you, let's be a church that is praying that, that's saying, how can I help others? How can I see other people's needs? That might, that might mean giving. So not Obviously, giving. I think giving to church as a whole is a great way of expressing that, but it may well also mean that actually you notice that there's someone in the church who you know is in financial difficulty, or even God may supernaturally tell you that. And it's saying, actually, I'm going to consider their needs more significant than mine. I have excess money, they don't have any, so I'm going to give to them. That might be a way of doing it. It may well mean actually very simple thing, babysitting. I think those of you who are here, I'm sure, who are parents and who have kids, I'm sure, have appreciated having babysitters come around from from Rev. That actually, I mean, to to a lot of people who are outside of the church, is a strange thing that there would be lots and lots of friends who can actually babysit for you. I, I know, from what I've heard, it's actually not that normal a thing but actually we have a family where we can say actually I'm going to put the I'm going to put the interests of that couple over there who haven't had a night to themselves for the last 2 years ahead of my own I really wanted to go to the pub tonight but I'm going to put their interests ahead of mine that's just a very another very practical way could be having people over for lunch saying actually I'm going I'm going to fork out the cost of providing a meal I'm going to open my home and I'm going to put these guys first could it could be actually and linking this again with Serving Sunday, it, could, it can actually mean si- signing up to serve on a Sunday. We've got so many amazing, committed, servant hearted people in this room who are serving in, in various ways. It may not necessarily um, be on a, on a Sunday, they may do other stuff throughout the week, but we need, just practically, we need a lot of people to make a Sunday work. But actually, a great way of saying, I'm going to consider others more significant than myself, is to say, Where can I serve? Where can I help out? How can I make sure that actually it's not, it's not the same people all the time who are serving, but actually how can I serve them? How can I, ser- how can I serve our kids so that actually they get really, really good teaching, they get good, have good fun? I mean, they make so much noise out there. I'm assuming they're having fun. Uh, how can I serve in that way? And just a very practical way, you may be relatively new to the church. You may, not have, um, you may have been here for a, for a while, but you've just not been serving for a while. Can I exhort you? Let's make it a priority to serve one another. And for you, that may, that may practically, a practical way of doing that could be actually to go and have a chat to the people who will be on the table outside later who head up the different areas and just say, I'd love to serve. How can I help? Can I put my name down and you can get in touch with me and I'd, I'd love to find out how I can serve more. That's just a very practical way. We want to give you that opportunity today. But Luca will explain practically how that works. But here's the point I make before we move on. Considering others more significant than yourselves involves sacrifice. It's, it, it's not easy. It, if it were easy, everyone in the world would do it. But actually considering others more significant than yourselves involves sacrifice. If you feel prompted and to, to give because you want to help someone who's in need, that involves parting with, of sometimes a substantial amount of money and saying, actually, no, I'm going to consider their needs. I've heard... Numbers and numbers of stories of, of Christians who had saved up to go on a holiday or saved up to have a house or something, and they felt God prompt them to help someone who was in need in their church or to give, give that away. And that, that costs. And amazingly, God provides for their needs when you, when you do that out of faith. But actually, that's, that's not the motive behind what they're doing. They're saying, I want to consider others more significant than myself. And so, yes, we had saved this up for a house deposit, but we felt God stir our heart to give to that person. That costs. It costs to serve on a Sunday. You guys who are on set-up, you you turn up at nine in the morning, you're all the way through to whatever time it is you finish, half one, two. That's That's a sacrifice. It involves time, it involves effort. But that's the kind of church we want to be building. That's the kind of mindset we want to be having. And actually, think about the result of that. You've got a church of people who are... Um, stumbling over each other to try and serve, actually everyone's needs end up being met in the process. It's just a very practical observation. It's not why we do it. But actually, as you've got a church that is constantly trying to lower them, each other under like that, and so I'm, I'm lowering myself under Luke, Luke's trying to lower himself under me, it just ends up becoming this amazing church filled with humility and gospel-centred mind. And that's an incredible example to the world. So just, I just I exhort and encourage you um, to... Think think even, think even now how you can be helping and serving and putting the interests of others before you. But lest this sound like a, a sermon where I'm basically just trying to say sign up for serving teams. That's not what I want this to be about. I want to spend some time looking through why do we do that. So Paul's like, I want this church to be united in their thinking. I want them to be united. I want them to be serving one another, loving one another. Why do we do that? And that is where Paul basically pulls out the big the guns big at this point and writes or quotes. It, it, it may well be that he's quoting a Christian poem that had already been written. He may have penned this himself, but he, he pens a poem that theologians have written hundreds and hundreds of books over throughout the centuries, and he's writing it to show the church, I want you guys to agree and to be of one mind amazing. Theology, deep, dense, intense study of God makes a massive difference to the way that you live. And I think we see that here. So let's just spend some time walking through this. So verses 5 to 11, have this mind amongst yourselves. So I want you to be united in one mind. What is that mind? Well, I'll tell you. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Just think about that. Christ Jesus was in the form of God, which is basically a a way of saying he is fully divine. He is God, the eternal son. As Christians, we believe in the the Trinity. We believe God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, delighting in relationship with each other for the whole of eternity past. God's not lonely. He didn't create the world because he was lonely. He creates the world out of love, actually, because actually God is love, because he is... They, the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit relate and love and honour each other for the whole of eternity and the Son is fully divine but does not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. I want to just help us put this in context. If, you've, if you want to flick quickly to Isaiah 40, if you ever have a small view of God, go to Isaiah 40 because it will very quickly solve that. Um, and in, in Isaiah 40, just Verse 12, got a few pictures to illustrate this, which I'll, I'll put up. But this is, this is what God is saying to his people. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Just have a look at the hollow of your hand quickly. How much do you reckon you'd be able to fit in there? If you put two hands together, you might be able to fit, I don't know, 100 milliliters, something like that in there. God says, who's measured the waters, the oceans? in the palm of his hand, in the hollow of his hand. Obviously, imagery, God doesn't literally have a body, but he is saying, hey, hey guys, it's like I'm standing there holding the whole of the oceans. and just able to pick the oceans up in the hollow of my hand. We apparently know less about what lurks at the bottom of the sea than we do what is outer space, I've heard. And God says, yeah, I'll just pick that up in my hands. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And marked off the heavens with a span Okay, that's, that's your span. God says, okay, I mark off the heavens. So that, if we could have the picture, actually, of the, the starry night. So I just think, we don't really see this much in London, so it's probably worth... Now, okay, every single one of those dots, and that's only the visible universe, the bit we can see with the naked eye. Take two dots very close together. It takes light thousands of years. So light travelling at 300,000 kilometres per second takes thousands of years to go from one of those dots to another one of those dots and those are two dots that are very close together that we can see and god says yeah i just span like a tent that's the god that we're talking about and keep remembering philippians 2 as we're doing this he was in the form of god who was enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure if we could have the picture of the sahara up okay that is a kind of image from space of the sahara desert probably the the largest hot desert on earth there's probably a lot of the dust of the earth contained there, but not all of it. And God just says, I've, I've, uh, I've measured the dust of the earth, by the way. I've taken my, taken my test tube, and it all fits. Just this is the God that we worship. The God that we worship just marks off the heavens with a span, contains the dust of the earth, weighed the mountains in scales. This is uh, a picture of Mount Everest. Imagine how heavy that is. Like Seriously, think of how heavy that is. And God says, you know what? My kitchen scales can weigh the mountains. Again, imagery, but it's trying to communicate something we just can't grasp. You can't can't get a grasp of how big God is. And when we look at this stuff and watch stuff like planet Earth, because it makes you want to praise God more, because you think, oh my goodness, I can't believe God made all this. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord and what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? The answer is no one. No one was there to give God advice. He doesn't need advice from people. Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Take all seven billion people that live in the world, the nations, and God says, actually... In comparison to my might, if all of them were to rise up in war against me, it would be the equivalent of the slightly annoying drip from my kitchen sink. It's just a drop in the bucket. That's not saying the nations are insignificant in God's eyes in terms of his love for them. It's a way of saying, compared to me, this is so small. And let's go back to Philippians 2 now. He was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, a thing to be grasped. This is what Paul was talking about in verse 4 at the divine level. So Paul says, don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Christ, who was in the form of God, didn't say, I'm going to take advantage of that. But he says, I'm not going to consider that something to be taken advantage of. That is the ultimate cosmic not only looking to your own interests, but looking to those of others. Christ models the kind of attitude that Paul wants the Philippians to have. This isn't Paul just saying, it would really help me out if you guys agreed. This is Paul saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to be like Jesus. Let's look at what Jesus is like and let's act in that way. And verse seven, it's like these are steps. It's like the steps of humility. In the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of, to be grasped, Step two, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, or the word there is slave. He emptied himself. Some of you might have the translation, made himself nothing, which is a great way of paraphrasing it, but literally it's he emptied himself. It's like he has the rights of heaven, and he says, I'm going to set the glory of heaven aside. He doesn't set his divinity aside. He is still fully God as he steps into humanity but he says, I'm going I'm to lay aside the glory of heaven. The glory that I had before the creation of the world, I'm going to lay it aside, and I'm going to humble myself. Just think of, so we often celebrate this at Christmas. Okay? We think about oh, the, the romantic thing about Mary and Joseph, and everything's so quiet and calm, and there's a few sheep around that often aren't making noise. Can you imagine if you were actually in a stable with a load of sheep? It would not be as quiet and nice as the most nativity scenes are. But we think of it as quite a romantic thing. This is the creator of the universe. I think someone called um, a guy called John Hosier phrased it in a way where I just should, just blew my mind. He said, "In some mysterious way, the baby lying in a manger was sustaining the universe." That's the God we worship. You've got a baby who needs his nappy changed, and yet in the mystery of God, he's upholding the stars those stars that take millions and millions of light years to go from one side to the other, this baby lying in a manger is holding them up. That's the God that we worship, and he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And verse 8, he, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the motive of death. It's like, this is one step, the next step, the next step down. Like That example I gave earlier of the posture of the heart, where you say, actually, humility is this. When it comes to Jesus, his face was in the dirt, because we have someone who has gone from a rightful position of authority and glory to the most, the lowest of the low. Have you ever wondered about the fact that when God became a man, he didn't become an emperor? I mean, God becoming a man in itself is like that. I mean that's enough to blow anyone's mind. But if you were going to become a man, you'd surely at least become a, a famous man or someone who's really powerful. Actually, what God does is he says, I have seen the despair of my creation. I've seen the sin of humanity. I've seen the evil and the injustice that is perpetrated there. I'm going right into the thick of it. I'm not not going in some palace. I'm coming right in a cave in the Middle East to be born to a peasant girl and to be laid in a manger because there's not even enough space for a, a crib in the room that we're staying in. I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to spend my life associating with the lowest of the low, with those who are outcast, those who are rejected. And then what I'm going to do to top it all off is I'm going to die in the most shameful possible way. The cross was agonizing. I I probably don't need to explain that to you, but it was also the most shameful possible way you could die. You'd be stripped naked. So if you've seen the Jesus films, the loincloth is just something that Hollywood uses so that they don't have to make it R-rated or or an 18, that you would be completely naked. We don't actually know much about crucifixion, and the reason is Roman authors didn't want to write about it. It was utterly, utterly disgusting. You would walk past people hanging on a cross, and you would jeer and laugh at them, because as as far as you were concerned if you were a Roman, these guys deserved it. They have tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. They deserve to be on there. And if you were a Jewish person, you would walk past and say, this guy must be cursed by God because our law says cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. It was utterly shameful. And I don't know if this is true in the case of Jesus, but apparently there is evidence that sometimes you would often crucify people at eye level. So the whole kind of massive cross thing might not necessarily be the way it was done. It may well be that you're you're hanging there and you're hanging there at eye level so people can walk past you and look you in the eye. It's the most shameful, degrading thing. And we're not just talking about a human being doing that. We are talking about the creator of the universe. The one who spoke and the Himalayas sprung into existence. The one who spans out the heavens like a tent says, I'm going to humble myself. This is, this is from humility to humiliation. This is just, this is the God that we worship. This is the God that we worship. And that is why we are so joyful. Because he did this so that he could redeem us. He did this so that we could be saved. He did this so that we could sing that song that says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because he died and was crushed and bore the wrath of God so that we could be set free. That's the God that we worship. And that's ultimately why Paul says, have this mind amongst yourselves. So Paul's trying to give examples. Here's what you do, here's what you do. You know what, guys, I'm going to stop there. I'm just going to tell you about Jesus. Because I think you'll get the point by the end of this poem. And I think the Philippians would have got the point by the end of that poem. And I think we do as well as we read that. This is our motivation for loving and serving one another. It's because Christ did this. This is our motivation for having one mind, because we think, "I want to think in the same way that Jesus did." Yeah. That we, 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 when we do that, it's a pale shadow of the ultimate act of humility, where God becomes a man and is bowed down to the dirt be- because of that. But obviously, it doesn't end there, and we'll the last few verses. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to actually spend much time explaining them because. They are, they're relatively self-explanatory, but what happens in the Gospel is that the crucified, shameful, um, apparently, man, Jesus, that people would have looked at and scorned and said, he, surely God wasn't on his side. The irony of the Gospel is, whilst he was hanging on the instrument that the Romans used to silence their enemies, he was actually silencing principalities and powers and destroying them. And then rose from the dead and has now been ascended to the highest place. So Paul says, therefore, because of his obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what God did because of his obedience, because of his humility, because of his sacrifice, he has glorified and exalted him. And he now has the name that is above every other name. He has been given the ultimate name, the name of God, we, God himself. This is a, a, this is a quote from the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, where God says, Turn to me the ends of the earth and be saved. There is no other God from me. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And Paul is saying in a way that any Jewish person at the time would have been flabbergasted. That is the name that has been given to Jesus. He has been exalted. He has been put above all things. He has been restored to the glory that he had before the creation of the world because of his humility. And actually, if you're here today and as I was talking earlier about not necessarily being a churchgoer, not knowing Christianity that much, then this is something that everyone will do one day, confess that Jesus is Lord. It it will be. You will one day confess that Jesus is Lord. And the question is whether you confess that willingly in the present or whether you confess that because your very body has to bow in front of this glorious, glorious, majestic Lord when he returns... And my plea with you is, please, 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 don't wait until that day, because it will be too late then. Please confess Jesus as Lord now. Make Him Lord. It means it means giving all of your rights up. I'm not going to hide that. It means giving, being willing to give everything up, and saying, I am completely yours. But in the process, you gain everything. You lose it all so that you can gain Him. And Paul did that, and we'll see that in chapter three how he rejoices in that, but my plea with you is please do that. And if that's you and you're, you're thinking, you know what, I want to I find out more, I want to I check this out, this is, you've you got me here, I feel like there's something in this that I want to explore further, then please come and find me or come and find Luke or Rich after the service or chat to the friend that brought you. We would love to talk to you more about this, but please, please don't put it off. Don't say, oh, I'll get round to it someday. Please make this a priority. But for those of us who know Jesus, this is actually the pattern of Christian life. The pattern of Christian life is exaltation after humility. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will exalt you. And we know that one day we will be exalted, because we will reign with Christ. We will be... Seated with, we are, well, we're currently seated at the right, not at the right hand, but with Christ in heavenly places. But one day we will be raised and this mortal body will be transformed and put on imperishability. We have perfect bodies and we will be united forever with Christ. So we are living in the age where we voluntarily say, I'm going to lower myself and imitate Christ. And we are waiting to participate in the age where God says, I am now raising you up and you will reign with Christ forever and ever and I will be your God, you will be my people. So can I urge you, in the present, let's take this truth, let's meditate on it, let's let this shape our lives. This is not theology, deep, intense study of God was never designed to be something that just some academic people did and never had any practical implications. This stuff is written because it's real. It really makes a difference. And so can I encourage and challenge and exhort us? Let's imitate Jesus in this. He's given us his Holy Spirit. This isn't something we do in our own strength. This is something we're empowered to do because he's given us his Spirit. Let's consider others more significant than ourselves. Let's be a one mind and let's, let's serve one another, remembering Christ, the one who was lowered to the lowest of the low, so that we could be set free and saved. I'd love it if, if we could respond, actually, sorry, I didn't brief the, uh, the, the welcome team or whoever, but if, I'd love it if we could respond actually by taking communion together, all of us, because we want to be a church that is united, of one mind. And actually, communion is actually a brilliant way of expressing the fact that we are one body. I'd love it if we could all take it down. So, if, if, Would it be okay if the, if the welcome team were able to pass round the, um, the communion um, baskets and so on? If you're not, like I said, if you're, if you're here today and this is perhaps your first time in a church, you wouldn't call yourself a, a Christian, you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, you don't believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, please sit this out. This is a, this is a Christian meal. It expresses the unity of the church. And um, I'd love it if we could do that. And um, In fact, I won't get the band to come up yet because I'd love you if you guys could also participate in this. But let's let's pass it round. Take the take the bread as you take it and and break it, and as you eat it, remember His body that was broken for us. And as you take the wine or the the grape juice, if you um, don't feel comfortable drinking alcohol, remember His blood that was shed for us. And remember, we are one body in Christ. We're united in him. And let's use this moment. Christ is present by his spirit here. As we take this meal together in some mysterious way that Paul, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10. You can read it in your own time. He says, when we take this meal, we partake of the body of Christ. And we participate in the blood. There's, this, there's something very special about this. And so let's take this together and... Um, as we've, when we've taken that, we will, I'm sure, move on to, to a time of response in sung worship. But I just felt it would be really good to be able to do this all together, so that we can express that. So let's, yeah, just wait for the basket to come round and. That. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then um, you can take it as it arrives. We're not, we're not going to all simultaneously take it, but we want to do this as a, a the, the, the Christian meal together. And, um, and then I'll hand back over to Luke, and I'm sure the band will lead us in a time of, of praise. But Father, thank you. What a, what a passage. What an immense, deep, powerful truth. And Father, I pray, that, I pray that you would stir our hearts to praise you. You would stir our hearts to love you more. Lord, that you would stir us to love one another, not because we have to, but because we want to out of love for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help, help my, I pray that my words would have affected people's hearts. Lord God, I can't do justice to this passage. No one can. But I pray, Father, that the truth of it would change us, change our hearts. We thank you for Jesus' humility. And we thank you that now he is exalted above all names and has received the name that is above all other names. And we think, And we gladly bow the knee. We gladly confess Jesus as Lord in the present, Lord God. And we take this bread and this wine to remember that new covenant that you started as you did that and as you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We thank you and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.